Welcome to the FedSpeak podcast, brought to you by MI Market News. I'm Jean Young, reporter in Washington. Today, our guest is Dominique Drorfico, macro strategist with Macro Hive based in Los Angeles. Dominique has had a career that included stops at the New York Fed, the IMF, World Bank, as well as on the buy side and sell side of hedge funds. So I'm eager to hear her thoughts on the outlook for the Fed, the Fed's balance sheet, and money markets. Dominique, welcome to FedSpeak. Thank you, Jean. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about MacroHive and what you're doing there. We are a team of independent researchers who basically offer institutional quality uh, research to retail investors. We have a, a core of institutional clients who are basically the biggest hedge funds and real money managers in the world and a growing number of retail investors. We've been around for nearly five years. We offer not only macro views, but specific trade ideas. We are also big in quant and increasingly AI. And we tend to be very interactive with our clients. Right. I'm sure they want to know what you think the Fed is going to do next, especially at this very interesting juncture. So maybe we can start there. Next week, we're going to have the June meeting. By all accounts, the Fed is pretty split coming into this meeting, although it seems that signs are that they are planning to make no move. What is your thought? Yeah, the Fed doesn't like to surprise market. So they've already announced they are going to skip. This is what they called skipping a June hike. At the same time, I think there is a little bit of potential for surprise with the dot plot, you know, where every uh, meeting participant supplies a forecast of where he sees the Fed funds rate, the policy rate at the end of this year. I think most people expect the median to go up. I actually think the median may not go up because, as you said, the committee is very divided and you can see it with a clustering of uh, dots around 5.1%, 5.1%, which is the current level of the Fed funds, and about seven dots above. And uh, the seven dots are, of course, of the more hawkish uh, members. And what I see happening is a hawkish participant becoming more hawkish, so the upper dots moving up, which will change the mean, of course, but not the median. And so that could be a little bit of a surprise. But... I think it also reflects the fact that the Fed is turning more dovish. Last policy meeting, Chair Powell told us that a June hike was in place, that the Fed was not necessarily done with hiking. All that had changed is that the likelihood of a hike was less than before because the Fed funds rate was now in restrictive territory. And then we've had a string of really strong data. I mean, look at inflation. It's stuck well above the Fed target. Growth is not going below trend, which is what the Fed is telling us would be needed to bring down inflation. So we get all these strong data, and then the Fed turns around and says they are going to skip the meeting. So to me, it shows that they are getting more dovish. Why is that? Is that because of the credit tightening anticipated that came out of the regional bank ructions? Or is it or do they see some signs in the economy that we're not seeing in the data? 
So if you look at the credit data, there is no sign of a credit crunch. Credit, bank credit has been flat for about two to three quarters, which is typically what happens at this stage of the business cycle. Basically, the time when businesses and household borrow is when there is a recession. And when the recession is over, people repay their debt. Why? Because unlike governments, private household and businesses cannot let the ratio of debt to income grow up forever. So when income normalizes, when the recession is over, people repay their debt so they have you know, capacity to borrow again if something bad should happen. So on the one hand, you have no sign of a credit contraction. Credit is flat. On the other hand, the data also shows you that demand for credit is actually not that great. So that means no macro impact of the so-called credit crunch, which is probably happening, you know, each time the Fed tightens, banks tighten credit criteria. And yet the Fed is keeping, as I say, to use, you know, to use their vocabulary. So why are they skipping? I think the, the influence of the doves within the committee is becoming stronger. Mm. I also think that the New York Fed president, Williams, uh, has recently come up with an estimate of R-star, which is a kind of a benchmark used by central bank. So the natural interest uh, rate of interest gives you a sense of where interest rate should be to balance the supply and demand of savings in the economy. This is a concept that is widely used. President Williams' estimate is that at the end of last quarter, it was 0.5. If you look at measures of long-term interest rate, real interest rate, for instance, based on a TIP, so on inflation index uh, bonds, the tenure, I believe, is about 1.5, so well above President Williams' estimate. I mean, you have to adjust down that 1.5 to take into account the term premium, right? Because it's a long-term yield, while President Williams' estimate is a, is, is a very short-term rate. But still, I mean, that suggests monetary policy is in very restrictive territory. And yet, if you look at growth, it's not slowing. If you look at residential real estate market, which is the most interest rate sensitive component of demand, it's recovery. Prices are up. And try to find a house to rent or buy. You'll have to pay through the nose. At least that's my experience. And I live in Los Angeles. So perhaps I'm a, I'm a little biased because things are quite vibrant there. But still... We're not seeing the cool downs that would be implied by rates in a restrictive territory. Mm -hmm. Another argument that they've been using, which they codified in the statement, is the concept of policy lags. That says that we might not see the effect of the tightening on inflation for a number of months, possibly even two years or more. Some of the hawks have said that the pandemic could have changed that and maybe you know the lags are much shorter now. How much do you think they're leaning on that argument and what might change their mind on that? Because that seems to be an issue of faith, right? 100% issue of faith. So this is basically the core of the Dove's argument. And we have what I call a dovish domination of the FOMC. So, you know, they are carrying the day by sheer uh, numbers. 
But if the data and the data will eventually show that underlying inflation in the US is actually very strong, it's just that because of the influence of the doves, you will need overwhelming data evidence. And another way of describing overwhelming data evidence is to say that the high inflation is already with us and the Fed is behind the curve. So to me, this whole issue of lags, it needs to be played as a risk management. And historically, we know that when the Fed starts from behind the curve, as it is in the 1970s, the cost of bringing down inflation are much higher than when the Fed is proactive. And so in my view, this would you know, warrant a sort of precautionary hike now. But obviously, I'm not the one making the decision. And it's clear that uh, the doves have no intention to, to hike this meeting and possibly not even next meeting. Let, let's see. Interesting. Before this whole discussion started this year, there were a lot of analysts warning against a start-stop kind of pattern to rate hikes, saying that that would be harmful for their efforts to control inflation. Do you think that's that's still something that's on their mind now? Or maybe are they looking at the experience of other banks around the world who have managed to restart hikes after pauses and they don't really see much market impact from that? U.S. policymakers tend to be a bit U.S.-focused, not very much inspired by the example of other central banks. There is still this assumption uh, in the U.S., you know, that most important country in the world. And so there isn't that much to be learned from other central banks, which personally I think is a, is a very dangerous view to uh, to hold. To me, the issue is not so much the stop and go, but the fact that we don't have a framework. In 2022, the Fed told us that inflation was transitory because they had this framework of the inflation-adjusted Phillips curve that as long as inflation expectations were stable, supply shocks would take care of themselves, that inflation was self-stabilizing. Now, obviously, this was falsified by the data, but the problem is that since then, the Fed has not come up with an alternative model. They say they are going to be driven, uh, I'm quoting Chair Powell here, by the balance of the data meeting by meeting. And so it's a bit of a rudderless Fed, frankly, because it means that they are reading, looking at the data at the same time as you and I, and they don't really have a medium-term framework to make decisions. And I think this is certainly adding uh, volatility to the market and the economy. What's your best guess on how things might play out for them? Do you think they'll have to restart hikes when they realize that inflation is staying at around 4% later this year? That's my expectations. I mean, if you look at the underlying drivers of the economy and inflation, fiscal policy over the past 12 months, the budget deficit has been the equivalent of about 7% of GDP. When we have the lowest unemployment rates uh, in 50 years, so this has to be one of the loosest fiscal stance since World War II. And the debt ceiling shaved off a little bit of spending, but not that much. It really did not change the picture. In my view, monetary policy is still very loose. If you compare 
the current Fed funds rate, so the policy rate with the Taylor rule. The Taylor rule, it's a little back of envelope calculations that basically gives you the level of policy rate required to stabilize the U.S. economy as a function of the deviation of unemployment and inflation from their long-term levels. Well, no matter which Taylor rule you use, because there are many ways of computing it, but we're still well below the Taylor rule level. And this is just what the residential real estate market recovery is, is showing us, as well as the resiliency of growth. So we have very loose monetary policy, very loose fiscal policy. We also have a really important parameter, which is a household savings rate, uh, because the U.S. economy is 70% consumption. So if you figure out what's going on with the consumer, you have a pretty good idea of which way the economy is going. So household savings are still well below pre-pandemic level and recovering uh, very slowly. And just look at the labor market. I mean, the bumper NFPs we keep getting. To me, the only mystery is why we are not getting stronger nominal wage growth. And in my view, it's coming towards the end of the year. So I'm not seeing inflation slowing much, core inflation slowing much from current level, if anything. I see the risk as really uh, tilted to the upside. So eventually, the Fed will have to bite the bullet and then accept that its policy tightening has not done enough to bring inflation to target. But I see that happening towards the end of the year. What would be your guess as to the peak rate? So long term, the Taylor rule has been an excellent predictor of the terminal rate in every tightening cycle since the 1960s. And my estimate of the Taylor rule is about 7 to 8%. Obviously, this is a, a long-term view. The Fed is not ready to go there. But I think the persistence of inflation and likely an acceleration of inflation will force the Fed to reconsider its current stance. But this is not happening for at least another six months. Interesting. I want to ask you about the regional bank crisis. How much do you think in their minds does the financial stability issue weigh? That if they hold off on rates, it'll give the economy a little bit more time to adjust and, and, and so on for the banks, especially. If we are talking of an impending financial crisis, of course, the Fed will not hike. Like, for instance, if the debt ceiling standoff had not been resolved, the Fed would not consider uh, hiking. But the type of financial crisis that we are having is a low-intensity one, where we have some issues with profitability in a number of smaller banks and probably a long-term trend towards a further concentration of the U.S. banking system. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't think the credit tightening that's coming out of this simmering, ongoing but simmering crisis is enough to have a macro impact. So I don't see that impacting policymaking of this meeting or the next. Let's turn to the balance sheet. We had the resolution of the debt limit. Since then, the Treasury is, has said that it's going to rebuild its general account. 
and markets are expecting a lot of issuances in the next few months. I guess the idea is that that could either put pressure on bank reserves or allow some money to flow out of the overnight reverse repo facility. Can you explain that dynamic? Sure. Basically, we have two squeezes coming. The first squeeze is on the asset side of the Fed, where we have a reduction in assets of about 100 billion a month between QT, so letting go of the securities portfolio, and the repayment of the bank borrowing that was done after the SVB crisis. So that shrinks by about 100 billion a month. And then on the liability side of the balance sheet, we have the TGA, so basically the checking account of the Treasury at the Fed, that went very low because of the debt ceiling. So the government was not allowed to issue debt, so they just run down their cash at the Fed. And the plan, the initial plan for the Treasury was to increase that balance to 550 billion by the end of June from the low, I think, was last Friday, 20 billion. So altogether, about 500 and some billion increase in the TGA. Now, because the asset side is shrinking, the liability side has to shrink as well, right? So if you increase the TGA, it means that there is going to be less room for the expansion of two other important liabilities of the Fed, namely the RRP and the bank's reserves. So altogether, between the Treasury and the and the Fed QT, we could have about 600 billion contraction in both RRP and bank's reserves. Now, the question is... Uh, what will happen to the RRP? The Fed RRP has grown a lot because it's such a good deal for money markets. You know, they get risk-free assets, which pays almost as much as the Fed funds rate. So for the money market to move out of the RRP and to buy something like treasury bills, which is the main alternative, and which doesn't change reserves, right? Because when a money market fund buys T-bills from on the secondary market from another investor, all you have is a shuffling of a cash uh, within the banking system. So you'd need to have T-bills more competitive than the Fed RRP because the Fed RRP is not rate is not set by market forces. It's decided by the Fed and the reasons they have it so close to the Fed funds rate, so high, is because they are using it as an instrument to control the Fed funds rate. And so for the RRP uh, uptake, you would need T-bill rates to become more competitive because for about a year or so, the Fed RRP rate has actually been above the one-month T-bill rate. So that's going to happen with the mega issuance that uh, Treasury is planning. Bills are going to get cheaper, and so the yields are going to get higher, and hopefully that will release some money from the RRP. But, you know, the risk is that not enough RRP money is released, 
and the brunt of the 600 billion contraction in reserves and RRP actually comes from the reserves. And if that happens, the Fed has a problem because the Fed has an operating framework based on abundant reserves. And if it takes away reserves, too many reserves from the banks, we will have a repeat of the September 2019 money market volatility where the Fed funds rate will spike, uh, move out of the Fed target, and so on and so forth. And that's why I felt the original Treasury plans to increase the TGA to $550 billion by end June was not realistic. I felt that too much of it would come out of reserves and would create money market volatility. And the Treasury actually on Tuesday, I think, came up with a statement saying that statement saying they were only going to increase the TGA to 425 billion by the end of June. So they are already moving in the direction which I was expecting, which is a much more gradual buildup of the TGA. And so my expectation is that the TGA is going to be rebuilt in a much more gradual manner so as not to create a liquidity squeeze in the banking sector. So you think that they they are doing enough of an adjustment to head off that potential volatility? Probably not. Probably not. But we will see. It depends on the... Uh, uh, the reaction of the T-bill yields uh, to this massive issuance. If there is a lot of demand out there to absor- absorb these newly issued T-bills, then we're not going to see much of a decline in the RRP because uh, uh, T-bill rates will remain low and the RRP will remain more attractive. So it really depends. I think there will be a further adjustment uh, down of the end June TGA targets, but it's hard to come up with a very precise estimate uh, at this point. You think that the incentives are aligned for both Treasury and the Fed to try to head off this problem? They've been working together a lot on the resiliency of the Treasury market, for example. One would think that they wouldn't want anything like this to happen. 100%. I think they are working on this together as they should. I think there is a broader issue with the Fed operating framework, which is now starting to get criticized by academics, by the BIS. I mean, this abundance reserve framework, I think, is unmanageable. And ultimately, the Fed ends up trying to to control both the quantity and the price of money and interest rates, and it just doesn't work. But... Before we get to that realization, we'll have to jump through many hoops, including the rebuilding of the TGA. Right. How do you think the QT program will finish up? Will they be able to continue doing it as they planned until the end, until I think a couple of years from now? I doubt it very much. In fact, if the Treasury sticks to its plan of increasing the TGA to $600 billion, by the end of September, I think the Fed will probably have to do QT. Because remember, as we discussed, the liability of the Fed balance sheet is essentially the TGA reserves and the reverse repo. And I think the Treasury 
is planning for a permanent increase in the TGA to 600 billion. So that is going to have to be accommodated, I think, because I, I don't see the RRP falling that much. And so the Fed will probably have to stop QT earlier than uh, it expects, I think possibly by the end of the uh, of the third quarter in order to accommodate this increase, this permanent increase in the TGA. Wow, very interesting. Okay, I think uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Dominique, for a very insightful conversation. Thank you.